Welcome to Yellow Iron Black Smoke, your podcast for construction heavy equipment economics and management. I'm Michael Kelly, your host. In this episode, we talk to Mike Vorster about his new book, why he wrote the original, and about chapter one. It's a good one. Mike Vorster is here with me today. This is Michael Kelly from Silvertrek. We wanted to talk a little bit about the management and some of the some of the things that Mike has learned over the years. I had an opportunity to go down to his place a while ago. Thank you for coming today, and welcome to the first podcast. Michael, a great pleasure, and it's wonderful to be working with you and to be sharing some of the some of the exciting things that. Uh, that you're doing and sharing some of the exciting things that uh, that I'm doing and uh, yeah, hopefully it's a good conversation looking forward to a great conversation so I can see I can see uh, you're in you're in Florida at your home and I'm up here in the Pacific Northwest uh, and things are a little bit crazy in 2020 yep sure a lot of the folk with whom I'm working are are learning all sorts of new things and uh, you know, this teleconferencing and the cutting down on travel, uh, thats those are amongst the sort of most obvious things that people are learning. But I'm also very, very definitely learning the fact that um, people are learning the importance of communication. It, uh, it seems as though we had to put a, a stress in our day-to-day communication system uh, in order to learn about the, how important it was to uh, to maintain communication so completely some agree. Of the- it's just like the, the and and what i've found is that the people who have a really uh, huge leg up are those who know how to write concisely yes yes and those who uh write concisely and those who write honestly and from the heart yes because it's your writing concisely and from the heart that is really replacing a lot of the face-to-face stuff, yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah, it is. But it's kind of nice to be able to uh, call and have video conferences. And you know, it, if if coronavirus had happened thirty years ago, <laughs> it would have been an interesting situation. Absolutely, absolutely. The video calling business has has really bridged a huge, huge, huge gap. And I think we've reached a level of comfort with the video co- recording and video conferencing world, which, as you say, we would never have reached before. And I think that level of confidence is going to serve us well into the future. Yeah. I remember reading a book when I was a kid, Tom Swift. They were written in the 1920s, and they were sci-fi, like young adult sci-fi novels, but written in the 20s. And they had video video calls. They didn't even have telephones yet, right? So they had ways of doing this video call. And it's like 100 years later, and we're finally there. Like we, I mean, we've been there for a long time, technically. But to actually have it reach out and have it so that, you know, my wife is using video calls in the home, right? Like Tom Swift wrote about 100 years ago that, or in the books, Tom Swift. You know, it's, it's, it's kind of interesting to finally kind of have – this has forced it to really get integrated everywhere. Yeah. And, of course, the, the old landlines – I work with a bunch of folk in, uh, in Germany and in South Africa. And the old landline system has long since gone, all right? And somebody must be saying, well, the economy is grinding to a halt because people aren't using telephones. <laughs> well, no, they're not. <laughs> exactly. Uh, a completely different paradigm in, in communication. And, and uh, wish, it, wish it had been with us long ago. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well so 
you know, you, you mentioned you mentioned South Africa. That's kind of where that's kind of where everything got started with your whole equipment. Uh, uh, your, your the the first time you really got interested in equipment, wasn't it? Yeah, um, it's a it's a long story, and sometimes when I count the years, it the, the number is 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 quite staggering. All right, but I grew up in the construction industry. Uh, my father sold the family farm when I was about five years old and and uh, said he'd much rather go dam building and he bought himself two D4s. And, and uh, as they say, the, uh, the rest was history for uh, about 20 or 30 years. And I think my father was more a, an applied equipment guy than a contractor. Okay? <laughs> what do you and, mean? Um, yeah. And, and as I grew up and as I completed my college work and so on and so forth and went to work for him, uh, I th- always thought that the equipment was the personal private property of the proprietor. And this is kind of where the family stored its wealth. Right? Okay. And if the, if the market value was greater than the book value, that was cool because when we sold it, we could go on holiday. Right. Um, and, and those sorts of things. And so I grew up, my early years in construction was about the equipment being the personal private property of the proprietor. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then my dad got very ill and we very advantageously sold the business. Uh, and I went to work for the largest heavy and highway contractor uh, in South Africa. I- I've never run an equipment fleet. I've been a project engineer, project manager, uh, you know, built work has been my career. And as I went to work for Marion Roberts, uh, my then boss, who I loved dearly and who influenced my life greatly, said to me one day, he said, Mike, you know, you really shouldn't fuss about this equipment stuff too much because equipment is just a self-destructive means to an end. (laughs) And so I said, wait a bit, there's something funny here because here are two very successful organizations, my father's business that I've just left. Mm-hmm. Marion Roberts that I've just started with. Yep. There's one attitude which says the equipment is the personal private property of the proprietor and the storehouse of family wealth. And there's another very successful business that says the equipment is a means to an end. Now, what is it in this construction industry of ours? And so that's kind of where the fascinated start, fascination started. I wanted to see if I could get to the bottom of this thing as to what was equipment in a construction company. Well, that's, a, that's an interesting point. distinction because you know you can kind of I can kind of see it in my own little personal life, right? I mean, we we don't have we don't have a, a, a equipment fleet running around in our backyard. Although I did just buy a dump trailer, so you know we're starting. Okay. Uh, but the <laughs> but the uh, but there is there is a difference, you know, the way that the way that we take care of Rebecca's minivan, right, which is now not even big enough for us, um, is very different than we than how we view the vehicle that I use to commute to and from work. Because yeah. the one we commute, I commute to and from work. I mean, that's just a runaround car. I bought it. I went to a used car dealer here in Battleground and I bought it the same day. I mean. I, I test drove it just because that's what you do, but it was like I trusted the guy, and I just, you know, I didn't even really care about it. I have a six-mile commute, right? It's nothing. It's nothing special. But then the minivan, it's like 
we actually take care of that thing. We make sure yeah. that the tires are good. We make sure, you know, that we have we have it serviced regularly. It's kept clean on the inside. You know, that it's a it's a very different paradigm when we look at those two. And one is just a tool. One is just a tool, the other is an asset. Yeah. The one is just a way to get to and from work, the other one is a family possession. All right. Right. Yeah. And it's the same with equipment. And you know, small, closely held companies. And many of them, of course, I don't want that small is probably the wrong word because many of them have been hugely successful and grown substantially, but they're closely held, still under the close stewardship of the founding father, who was probably a gearhead to start with, right? <laughs> they have this personal private property of the proprietor attitude towards equipment. And then once you've got past the founding father and you're perhaps into the sort of a corporate survivor and corporation mode, the equipment becomes a means to an end. It becomes about building work, all right? Yeah. And I, that, that, is, that was the start of my fascination, and, and it remains a fascination because, as you say, it's, an, it's a completely unanswered question, and it's an unanswerable question but it does set the tone for the whole operation. So that's interesting because the, you mentioned, you know, if, if you're the corporation mindset of the, of the, you know, that, that has taken over from the founding fathers, there's so many businesses that I work with, so many construction businesses that are right at that transition. Maybe it's been taken over by the, by the, the family of the founding father. Maybe we're on to the third generation, but it started to become more about, a corporate board and about return on investment and you know there's in it in the the it's less now about uh you know going out and providing for one single family and for the 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 descendants of that one single family and it's more about the the owners and getting an owner's return you know as as a stakeholders as a whole i guess you can say yeah and 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 of course You've heard the adage that says it's relatively easy to transfer from generation one to generation two, but it's very, very difficult to transfer from to to you know for the company to pass from generation two to generation three. Sure. Uh, and a lot of good construction companies, a lot of the kinds of companies we're talking about now, were started in the mid-late 40s when the GIs came back from World War II, right? Mm -hmm. And they'd operated machines on the islands in the Pacifics. And uh, that's, you know, that was what they brought home. And that's that's how they started. And those companies are now in the second, third generation transition. And that's a very, very difficult thing. And amongst the things that are difficult is, what's your attitude to your equipment? (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, and and you know, and it's a, it's a funny mix too. You get in some companies where I've I've seen that the the equipment, the the person who's tasked by the owner or owners with with running the equipment fleet may have the more corporate mentality. Destructive means to an end. And then, like I I had one guy tell me, he says. But then every now and then the owner goes to an auction and we get new yellow iron that shows up in the lot that I knew nothing about. <laughs> <laughs> yep, because the owner is a gearhead in the end, right? And he's in the business because he likes tractors, okay? Yeah. Uh, that's, that's how I grew up. We were in the construction. My family was in the construction business because we like tractors. 
We didn't, my, my father had a, an aversion to concrete. <laughs> and he thought concrete was just a mysterious thing, all right? <laughs> uh, and, but, but yellow iron was good. Yellow iron was good. Sure. So, so I'm, I'm sitting here, and I have a stack of books um, in that are these the orange books that say Construction Equipment Economics. So you wrote this book, and what, when, what was the actual published date of this, Mike? Was it 2009? Yeah. Was the original was the original publication. So, yeah. so this this book clearly, when I first read it, which I think was in 2011 when I first read this book. Um, so a couple years after you'd published it, it was obvious to me that this wasn't a book that you sat down and wrote in one year. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it, it's, it's, it's a book that I didn't write in one year and it's a book that you shouldn't read in one year. <laughs> um, yes. Well, right about, I started writing articles for construction equipment magazine for Rod Sutton, who's the editor of, Construction Equipment Magazine. I started writing articles for Rod about six years before that, about 2002, 2003. I started okay. this business of writing a monthly article uh, for construction equipment. And so by 2008, when I started putting that thing together, I had about 70 articles uh, that I'd written for construction equipment. And I wanted to see whether I could, in fact, stitch them together uh, into a book. All right. Mm -hmm. And so that, that book is a bringing together, a stitching together of about the first uh, 70 articles. I wanted to bring the articles together, put them in, uh, sequence them in themes, and kind of give them a, uh, a home, all right? Mm -hmm. uh, some of the folk who'd been reading Construction Equipment Magazine actually had a three-ring binder where they had cut the articles out and pinched them and put them in a three-ring binder. So I said, well... Why can't I uh, figuratively or using the word processor punch the articles and put them in a three-ring binder? Right. And so that's that's how the, the first edition of the book uh, came to pass. Right? I see. So so at this point in 2009, when this was published, were you still at Virginia Tech? Yeah. Yeah, I was at Virginia Tech. I think I did the whole thing. I took a year sabbatical or something like that and did the whole thing uh, I see. at that time. All right. Because every diagram, every picture, every keystroke comes courtesy of my two-finger typing ability. <laughs> the book actually exists as a one big PDF uh, app at the at the Focal Printed, and I call them and I say, "Print me another two hundred and fifty copies," and they send two hundred and fifty copies down to my to my garage, and I mail them out of the and folk buy them on the website, and I. And I take them to the post office and mail them. So it's a very uh, one-man operation. Uh, sure. I've just enjoyed it. But, you know, it's, it's fascinating because the construction equipment economics, that's about as dry people, you know, if, if I was to go down to uh, the coffee shop here in Battleground and say, hey, uh, I want to talk to you about that new fascinating book, construction equipment economics. I mean, their eyes would probably glaze over fairly quickly, but but that's not that's not what you saw. And that's not what I've seen actually in talking to people either. I mean, this has been an extremely popular book, hasn't it? Yes. Um, a buddy of mine, when I spoke to him about it, I said, how many copies do you think I'll, I'll, I'll sell? And he said, about 350 if you're lucky. And I think I've had 12 or 14 printings of 250 a throw. So it's sold remarkably, remarkably well. 
The other part about that is when I got it done, I, you know, I went to the, to the classic and typical uh, publishers of books, you know, the McGraw Hills and the Prentice Halls and those guys. Sure. And I said, well, what do you, you know, what do you think about this? And they had their ideas. And I spoke to another friend and he said, why do you want to do that with them? He said, all that will happen is construction equipment economics will be another title in a long list of books that a salesman sells. Yeah. Nobody's going to buy construction equipment economics from a printer's hall salesman, <laughs> but they'll buy it from you because they know you, because right. you know the community. And he said, why don't you therefore publish it yourself? Yeah. Because nobody will look after your book the same way as you will look after it yourself. And you right. know the community and you know the people. Right. And gee, was that a great piece of advice? Uh, because yes, if I'd given it to Prentice Hall to sell at the coffee shops, I think I don't think it would have sold at all. All right, um, exactly. But uh, but it sells because I'm out there doing my consulting and my teaching and all those sorts of things, and people plug into it and and uh, and buy it and so on. What it did for me in 2011 was it allowed me to stop trying to invent everything related to equipment. Because at that point, I was working with a medium-sized construction company, heavy equipment company here in the Northwest, and I was working in their estimating department. Uh, this, was, this was for Silvertrack Systems, but I was a one-man band at the, that time, and they, were, they had hired me to, to implement HCSS's heavy bid. And of course, in order to do that well, I had to learn their business well. And in order to learn their business, I realized this is a massive issue. Equipment is a massive issue. In fact, that was the time, you know, um, that uh, I I first met you up at Ruth's Chris up in uh, in Seattle, and and yeah. that was all my also my first introduction to Ruth's Chris, which you know the fancy steakhouses fancy steakhouses aren't normally in in my repertoire as a you know <laughs> for some reason for some reason feeding all the kids fancy steak isn't something that we do, but. Um, <laughs> But it was. But we were with good friends. We were with good friends. We were with good friends, and I and I and I thoroughly enjoyed the 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 evening, and and it allowed me to stop trying to say, okay, what? How do we have to start? And I had this big disorganized mess, and say, you know, in which in the end I had to help this company's estimators say, how much are we going to charge for a job, right? And it allowed me to start thinking about it in a disciplined way. And and that was actually one of the things that you, you say in the introduction to this book, um, and uh, I have it here, something along the lines of ISO 55000 sets some standards for use, but these are hardly relevant to the construction industry and help very little. And then you talk about um, in that same, that same introduction how in accounting we have generally accepted accounting principles, right? But there is nothing that is widespread and accepted for the for the economic for construction assets so did you did you imagine at the time that this was going to become that standard i imagined at the time and particularly now that uh, that it will lead folk towards some kind of standard because truly one of the issues we've got with with equipment and equipment management is that there is no right way, there is no wrong way, there is no standard way mm -hmm. of, uh, of doing these things. And 
and everybody is sort of cobbled together or put together or grown up with their own approach to the things, to the management of fleets. And, you know, there are no standard ways of measuring availability or reliability or utilization or any of the of the metrics we use today. Mm-hmm. There's no standard format for an equipment account cost report. There's a standard format or a well-accepted format for a job cost report, right? And certainly for a company cost report, it's called the P&L, right? Yeah. But equipment, we would benefit greatly if we were to uh, develop some sort of generally accepted practices for um, for managing a fleet. But, Michael, you bring up a really interesting subject, and, and, you know, this we need to explore some more at some other point in time, and that is that the relationship between equipment and equipment costing and estimating, because we do a lot of work, a lot of work. Remember, I never ran an equipment fleet. I was an estimator project manager, right? Sure. So I look at the world through the eyes of an estimator project manager, uh, you know, field work, field construction. When we do an estimate, the thing which is critically important to us is what are the resources we're going to use cost? And then, of course, the second thing is how productive are those resources? Sure. And when we look at the resources we're going to use in an estimate, uh, let's take concrete. We go to a lot of trouble to find out what a cubic yard of concrete is going to cost us. But... Do we know with the same degree of confidence and accuracy what it costs us to own and operate a a whole truck? Because a whole truck is a resource in the estimating program. And so our estimated rate for that whole truck is, in fact, an estimate within the estimate. Yep. And one of my early sort of itches in this equipment thing is we used to do estimates in the good old days with pencil and paper. And there'd be a two-page estimate for what it costs you to do the masonry in a manhole. Because this is what the bricks cost. This is what the mortar costs. This was what a, 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 a mason cost. This is the productivity of a mason. And you built this masonry in a manhole estimate up from first principles based on the cost of the resources and the productivity of the resources. Mm-hmm. And then it came to the earthworks. And you said, well, they're going to be... You looked at the productivity carefully and you said, all right, they're going to be 3,822 motor scraper hours needed to move this. And what does a motor scraper cost us? And you turned around to a buddy and says, well, do you know what a motor scraper is going to cost us? And he said, yeah, we've got it written down somewhere. Mm-hmm. And you multiply those 2,800 odd hours by some estimate of something else. Mm-hmm. And so the rate for the motor scraper was an estimate within the estimate. Mm-hmm. And the relationship between equipment costing slash equipment economics and estimating is, I think, grossly misunderstood. I think that if folk understood that equipment economics, equipment costing was an essential part of the estimating process, I think folk will give this whole business of equipment cost analytics the attention it deserves. Sure. Right? And oh, I try to make that case with as many people as I possibly can. Well, uh, and, and I, I completely agree. And it's the, 
is such a huge component of so many construction companies. I mean, all construction companies have some sort of equipment, but yeah. but the heavy civil, you know, you the bridge builders, you have these this section of construction companies where it's such a enormous component of their overall cost and and to watch them bid an inner city job with the same rates as they're bidding a an irrigation canal in the middle of a field is is you know you're looking at it and you're going I, there's something wrong here but you don't know what when you first you first encounter it right and, and it's not the productivity because like you said they know their productivity they know their man hours they know how long it's going to take to do these things now it's 2020, so it's been 11 years since this first published. Yep. And and you're starting on a second edition. Yep. Tell me a little bit about the second edition. What what's what's the what are you what are you hoping to get out of it? Why now? What's the what's the thought behind sitting down and rewriting this? Possibly with, with four fingers now. <laughs> Three maybe. Two fingers and a thumb. Um, <laughs> Well, in the years that have passed, the number of articles has grown from 70 to 170. So I've got a lot more uh, resources that I can use. Um, I've also learned a lot of tough lessons through the consulting and teaching practice, through my consulting and teaching practice. And so hopefully I've, I've been rolled around a whole lot more. Uh, I really enjoy the opportunities that I have to learn because of my the opportunities I have to help other folk learn, all right? And so a lot of the stuff which was in the first edition will sort of mature and survive into the second edition, but the second edition is very, very different because of the maturing and surviving that I've been doing uh, through what, 10, 11 more years of, of rolling around in the industry and, and, and learning from some really, really smart folk who practice this, this art on a day-to-day basis. So more knowledge, more experience, more, more hard-won lessons that I'm hoping to incorporate into the second edition. Sure. So with these experiences, you know, you, you, uh, you talk about there's not a gap. There's not a generally accepted accounting principle. So, you know, and we have this ISO standard, which does not fit. And, you know, it, and, and you, you talk a lot about, I mean, when I've heard you, when I've heard you uh, addressing a class over the years or, you know, in, in individual consulting, when I've been part of that, you talk about having a framework. And so what is this framework and, and and why do you find it to be important? I mean, even even here in this in the in the uh, the, the orange book that I have, you, you talk about a framework. You know, so in the two thousand nine edition, um, and, and what is that framework? How is that matured? What is that? What does that framework look like? Okay. Well, um, two stories. Two stories will tell us something about the framework. I was sitting down with a consulting client one day, and. Um, we were sort of at the start of our relationship. And he looked at me and he said, Mike, okay, so we're going to work together on this, but what do we need to do to be world-class? What do, what do I need to do in my business to be world-class? And I kind of went, whoa, wait a bit. Here's a question I suppose I should be able to answer. <laughs> so I said, well, Pete, uh, I think we're in the construction business. And as we've spoken a little while back, 
we're in the sort of estimating business. And so I think job number one is you've got to know your costs. Job number two is this fleet of yours represents a third of the right-hand side of your balance sheet. So it's a big investment and a big fixed cost. So you've got to utilize it. And so you've got to be really, really good at utilization. So number three, this fleet of yours is the mechanism by which you build your work. And you're not going to build your work on time and on budget and safely to the required standards if your equipment keeps breaking down. So the third thing that you've got to be really good at is to stop your machines from breaking. And I said, the fourth thing you've got to be really, really good at is manage the age of your fleet because it gets used up. At the end of today, your fleet is going to be older than it was at the beginning of today. Sure. And it gets used up. So you've got to replace it. And so sort of contemporaneously in that conversation, I came up with what I've called the four key performance areas. Know your costs, maximize utilization, stop it from breaking, manage age. Those four key performance areas are the framework of the second edition. Okay. Because I also noticed that every time I had a consulting assignment, the consulting assignment did one way or the other address all four of those areas. Sure. So I was one-on-one advising my clients to become world-class or helping them to become world-class in knowing their costs, maximizing utilization, stop it from breaking, and managing age. And so those four things have become this framework. Sure. And if we're thinking about generally generally accepted practice, let's have a generally accepted practice that focuses on those four things. Sure. But it seems but it That's seems like there's some there's some overlap too in those four things, right? I mean, because the for for example, take your age. I mean, if you have a very 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 old fleet, it's going to break down all the time. And if it's broken down all the time, then your utilization is going to stink. And then you know your cost, like you said, the first one I think was know your cost. That, that your costs are going to go up like crazy. So there's clearly some, they, they relate to each other. So how, how do you look at these four things? How do you look at the interrelatedness of this when you say you're out on your consulting gig or, you know, you're talking, you're writing this in this new, in the new edition, how do you present that? How do you, re, how do you, how do you talk about the interrelatedness? Yeah, well, nothing lives in a silo, right? And yes, there is. And thankfully there is interrelatedness. If your utilization is not good, mm-hmm. then you're not going to get the hours worked and you're going to run into terrible trouble with regards to recovering the fixed cost of ownership. Mm-hmm. So there's the relationship between utilization and the fixed cost of ownership and the fixed cost of ownership has a relationship back to the owning and operating cost. Yeah, okay. And in many ways, we can then say utilization is a lead indicator of owning cost which is a portion of total cost. What you're saying is that, saying that it's a lead indicator is that you can predict cost. If you know today's utilization, you can predict cost in the future over time. You can can predict that if today's utilization is bad, you're heading for a problem with regards to owning cost. Now let's look at reliability because every reliability, the frequency of down events, Every down event is also a cost event, right? Sure. There's a true truism. Yeah. 
And if we get a lot of down events, rest assured, we're going to get a lot of cost events. Sure. And if we get a lot of cost events, rest assured, we're going to get high operating costs. Yep. And if we get high operating costs, we're going to get high earning and operating costs of our fleet. And so reliability is a lead indicator of operating cost overruns. Okay. And then let's look at age. If the stuff wears out, you're going to be in terrible trouble. Because as you've said, if the stuff wears out, breaks down a lot, you're not going to, you're going to expose yourself to a lot of operating costs. Uh-huh. Breaks down a lot, you're not going to get your utilization. And so although most of your owning costs may have been amortized by then, sure. you're not going to get your work built. Okay. Yeah. And so owning costs, uh, so age sort of brings those two together. So yes, the four key performance areas uh, are interrelated and six and, and while and, and I like to think of the age utilization and reliability as lead indicators uh, of cost. Right? So so it, it feels like it, that these four have really become the, the foundation, the, 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 the cornerstone of your work in a way that maybe wasn't it wasn't there to uh, maybe it wasn't crystallized as much in the 2009 edition is that is that a fair statement that's that's a very fair statement these three areas being lead indicators of cost this is kind of was an aha moment uh, on a long flight between two very distant cities at some at one at some stage i don't know exactly when but one has these aha moments on sitting on airplanes. Yes, it was kind of a realization that, you know, I've grown up or I grew up or my boss tried to grow me up on the basis that you've got to analyze your costs and they will tell you where the problems are. And many of us grow up on the basis of sort of reactive cost management. We have, we use cost as a, as a siren for a problem. Sure. Okay. Um, whereas, in fact, cost is the result of a problem somewhere else. Yeah. And I think we, I have recently moved to the mindset which says that cost is defined by performance. Or we can manage performance by managing a relatively small number of lead indicators. So the cost of our fleet is is defined by the performance of our fleet. Mm-hmm. Can we manage the performance of our fleet by managing utilization, reliability, and age? Yeah. Okay? So that's kind of the philosophy or the approach that, like I say, it came to me in an aha moment on a long flight or maybe at 3 o'clock one morning when I was rolling things around, all right? Sure. But that is a significant difference in my thinking between... 2009 and now, right? And that idea isn't much more than a year or two old anyway. Sure. So, uh, well, it, 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 what it feels like to me is that because you you talked about this in this book, you've talked about this. I mean, even even that that first day at Ruth's Chris when I met you, that that you, know, you, you were talking about these things, but they were. It felt. It feels like now that there's been a a bit more of a realization that it, it's been swapped. Just like you said, that your your boss said that cost is the siren to show you where your problems are. But now it's almost like I'm hearing more and more that these three things 
the 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 reliability, the utilization, and the age, they're going to predict the cost, not the cost showing you where the problem is, or or that it's not just only one way; it's two way. Is that fair? Yeah, and and bear in mind that you can no longer control a cost that you've spent. <laughs> sure. <laughs> and and I think that we, if we imagine cost as a siren, those dollars are out the door already. Yeah. Okay? Yeah. And we can uh, we can beat our gums about it. We can worry about it. We can uh, we can report them. We can measure them. Uh, but the dollars are out the door. I think if we put a laser focus on reliability, utilization, and age, we stand a very good chance of stopping some costs, of minimizing some costs, of reducing some costs. And so one's constantly on the hunt for lead indicators of cost. And, and that's what I'm hoping that this realization has taken us slightly closer to. I'm sure in 30 years' time, somebody will say, gee whiz, that was, that was rough and ready. There's <laughs> something else which is a lead indicator of cost, and it might be a, a whole series of uh, fault codes coming out of some sensors on the machine somewhere as a lead indicator of cost. Good. Right? But this, I think, is kind of where the state of the art is at the moment. Yeah, well, and, and I, I hope so. I, and if in 30 years we're still using the same framework as we are today, it means that there has been either that it's perfect now, which which would be it would be would be great, but it, it seems like the probability is fairly low, and or that more likely the problem would be that there has been nobody thinking about it for the last thirty years, and if if people there's there's a lot of incredible i mean the, you you've met many more of them than i have but there's a, a tons of incredibly sophisticated minds that are taking care of equipment fleets and yes and those people are going to find ways to manage their equipment fleets that we can't currently imagine i mean it's just like we started this conversation of you know if we had to, if we had to do this whole coronavirus video conferencing things thirty years ago, we would be faxing each other about this conversation, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and yes. and it's, I, we don't know what it's going to look like, but but I certainly hope that it will have, that will it will have been built that that this will be something that has been built upon. And there are incredible minds managing the fleets, and there are also incredible minds developing the technologies needed to improve that management, those management processes. And, you know, the telematics technologies, the sensor technologies, the data processing technologies, the artificial intelligence technologies, and all those things, okay? Yeah. And, you know, when I sort of started this sort of, this, this quest for uh, knowing about the management of fleets, we didn't have the technologies we have today and I know that the folk in 30 years' time will have way better technologies. I mean, you will, folk like yourself will be in your prime and, and you will have made your, had your impact on the business and it's got to be better uh, than it is today. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I have here a draft of uh, your first couple of chapters in this book. And I wanted to switch a little bit here to talk about chapter one. Um, like you had you'd mentioned right before this call that that it kind of has two two 
components, really. There's there's a talk about the the functions of equipment management, and then there's the talk about the organization that needs to be built in order to make these functions happen. Maybe maybe we can look through those. We have six of them here is what you what you list out: acquisition and disposal, compliance and risk management production interface and logistics, field maintenance and operations, shop and yard operations, and fleet and asset management. How did these come about? What, 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 why, why these six? How do they, uh, this is, you know, the, the first section of chapter one. You know, it's, it seems like a fairly important deal. Yeah. Well, as we've spoken about the sort of key performance areas and the management technologies in those four areas, one of the things that doesn't change is the sort of what you've got to do and how you organize yourself, okay, your business. And so, yes, chapter one is sort of the, how shall I say, the evergreen truths of getting stuff done, right? You've got to know what it is that you've got to be good at, and then you have to have an organization that enables you to be good at those sorts of things. So while we've spoken a lot about the the technologies and the things that are going to change, you know, competent organization, I don't think is going to change. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The, uh, the six equipment management functions that are listed in that hexagon, again, there's a story, got trapped by a thunderstorm at the Detroit airport, gate 32C, uh, flight to Roanoke, spent the night there and spent the night thinking about what it is that I would expect an equipment management team to be good at. And the first thing I said is that I think an equipment management team needs to be really good at buying and selling the stuff, right? Yeah. Because I think the acquisition decision is very underplayed in its importance. Because get the right machine into your fleet, get that machine financed correctly, and you're in with a chance. Yeah, right. right. Handle the disposal of your old stuff well, and it certainly helps a lot. Right. So acquisition and disposal was one of the things that I, I think the equipment management team needs to be good at. Well, and it seems like that the key phrase of what you just said is that if you can purchase it, I don't know if you said well, then then you have a chance. If you if you really overpay for something and compared to your competitors, then you're kind of hosed. You're, you're, it's, it's very difficult. You don't have a chance to go out there and compete. That commitment's made if it's a finance commitment and there's nothing you can do about it. You can't go to the bank and say, oh, gee, the interest rate on this loan, please. That yeah. commitment's made. You can't go to a lease house and change that commitment. And if you've bought cash, paid it cash for it, the money's out the door. A lot is fixed the time you ink the deal. Yeah. And so you've got to be really careful about the deal that you ink. Okay. So that's that part about it. The other thing is that if you actually buy a machine that's not, doesn't have exactly the right specification for the job that you want done, you can't go and replace a track type tractor with a wheel tractor. All right. Yeah. You can't go and replace, you can, but it's going to cost you a lot to replace a smaller machine with a bigger machine you should have bought. Sure. So the specification of the machine, the brand, make, and model, 
if you choose a tempting offer, but that machine that's part of that tempting offer isn't well supported in your particular area where you're working mm -hmm. through its dealership network and those sorts of things, then you've made a lot of decisions that have created the world in which you're going to live for the next three, four, five, six years. Okay. Yeah. But the acquisition decision is incredibly important. At the last equipment symposium, there's a lot of talk about the gray market, um, the, 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 the off-brand equipment that you could often get for extremely good prices, and then you had to pray after that mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. that was your only chance of maintenance. And, mm -hmm. and then you had a lot of talk about uh, the liquidity of the equipment market in these all of these different constituent areas you know you have some places where where you can go and replace you know something very quickly it's like okay this isn't working very well with a scraper so we're going to change to a to a haul truck and excavator and you can actually do that even though it's painful it's possible and then you have some places you know particularly in in lower populated areas where that involves Putting it, putting it on a low boy and hauling it to you know the Twin Cities or hauling it to St. Louis in order to actually get that done, and and it's and it's very difficult. Let me just back back to this you know off brand kind of idea, and that is that premium brands aren't always the right answer. Mm -hmm. You know, buy a machine that's that's fit for the purpose intended. In many cases, that is a premium brand. Uh -huh. In some cases, that is uh, something, a brand that we wouldn't today call a premium brand. Right? Mm -hmm. I've been very successful knowing exactly what the job is, knowing exactly the duration of the job and the demands of the job, and selecting what people at the time thought was a crazy, making a crazy selection, but it was eminently suited to the job at hand sure. and it worked very very well indeed and so i'd like to sort of um i don't want to say caution against but uh, put in a bit of a shout out for the fact that you know premium brands aren't always the only solution sure and that you know these the the, the spectrum of brands exists because there's a spectrum of needs in the industry yeah well, so so the the acquisition disposal, it feels like I, I really like the way that you said that that there's a that you you have to be you have to be good at that in order to have a chance at the rest, and and then you need to be able to get rid of the machines when you're done in order to not have them clogging up your yard if nothing else, um, mm -hmm. and and like you said on on the jobs that you you were actually in charge of once the job was done you might not even have a need for that particular piece of equipment anymore. And so, you know, disposal is the best option. So, but then the second thing is compliance and risk management. So uh, talk a little bit about that. What, why was that number two? Well, it's not, it's not, there are, the, the, the sequencing around the hexagon with number one and number two is, is not a, a priority sequence. It's just, it was the next triangle. Okay, um, okay, that's good. If I bought it, now I must make sure that it's compliance and risk management. Well, anybody who thinks that compliance and risk management isn't a growing industry 
still believes in Cinderella and the Tooth Fairy and Father Christmas, all right? Because we are progressively seeing uh, need for, you know, increasing emissions compliance, increasing safety compliance, uh, increasing safety and increasing safety inspections and all those sorts of things, licensing, insuring, insurance, and, and so on and so forth. And uh, those kind, those aspects of managing a fleet are non-negotiable. Uh, it's not an optional extra to ensure that you've done the inspections. It's not an optional extra to do your daily inspections and, and be confident about them. It's not an optional extra to make sure that your fleet is as safe uh, and as um, as safe as it possibly can be. So, hey, compliance and risk management is is not an optional extra. You just have to be good at it. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, guess what happens? You mm-hmm. fail. All right. Exactly. And so, and so, uh, so that's why it comes. And it comes there because you know once you've bought it and brought it into your fleet, the next thing that's really important to do is to make sure that it's that it's licensed, insured, inspected, and, and attended to, right? Um, it's also next to acquisition and disposal because acquisition and disposal are the principal components of the owning costs, and then compliance and risk management are the next components to the owning costs. I've heard people refer to this as the necessary evil, um, particularly my clients that are in California. Uh, the <laughs> they they talk they talk about compliance load that the state has as uh, being you know possibly in their view a little overbearing. But it does seem to me that they do just have to do it, and they either do it late due to an audit and expensively, or and then usually after the first audit, then they work on getting the you know the actual infrastructure in place to to manage it proactively. Uh, and that's that's a it's a it is a it is a big job. I mean, it's a it's a it's a large job, and it's primarily an administrative job. Not somebody who necessarily understands equipment ins and outs, but somebody who can quickly and effectively manage the the paperwork, relicense, yeah. hire, you know, do all of that kind of thing. And and then, of course, there's the there's the physical aspect of it too, inspecting the machine and all of that. But it's the administrative that makes that possible. It is now time to inspect the machine and document this, for example. Yes, yes, yes. And you raise a hugely important issue. Remember, we said these. Uh, six equipment management functions were what you want your equipment management team to be good at. Yeah. It's not negotiable that they are not good at compliance and risk management. Right. Okay. Um, And it is a completely different skill. It's not to do with oil and grease. It's not to do with nuts and bolts and filters and bearings and bushings. And that's one of the things that's a real fascination about equipment management is it requires a vast spectrum of skills. Mm-hmm. In the acquisition phase, when we're talking about financing, you need a skill which says, and which lease agreement is most advantageous, which financing agreement is most advantageous. You need the skills of a CFO to do the acquisition. Notice I don't say buy because you do a lot more than buy when you acquire. Or oh, absolutely. And so we're looking at two skills there in, in acquisition and, and disposal and, 
and compliance and risk management that have very little, if anything, to do with nuts and bolts, oil and grease, bearings and bushings. Okay, And it's a really cool point that you make about the spectrum of skills and aptitudes and attitudes that you need to manage a fleet. It's not just a super mechanic. It's a lot more. Yeah. So, so then the next triangle in the hexagon is production interface and logistics. So is that true again here that we need another set of skills to be doing this? Yes. Well, I, I guess what is this? What is, what is where, this? Yeah, what, what is this? this? Yeah, exactly. Well, you know, a huge part about a job and running a fleet is to make sure that you've got the right equipment in the right place at the right time. Mm-hmm. And you've only got to look at the number of low boys that a lot of large local and regional construction companies run. And one of the ways of really managing your fleet and managing the cost in your fleet and your utilization in your, of your fleet is to make sure that it's in the right place at the right time. And if somebody says, I need a machine next week, then you better get it there next week. Okay? Mm-hmm. If you want to um, find out what somebody what the jobs need you're going to have to interface with the jobs and you've got to arrange the logistics of the whole thing and so every equipment management team has got to have its logistics division if you wish or its logistics department or its dispatch department Mm -hmm. what a lot of people call it right and so You've got to have somewhere in this team somebody that runs the low boys, that understands what the jobs need, that understand that if the job needs a 40-ton excavator, sending them two 20-ton excavators won't work. (laughs) 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 And, 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 you know, just interface with, because the job sites are your clients, right? Yeah. And so your production at, production interface and logistics, very nearly call that triangle, you know, interface with your client or know your client's needs. And your equipment management team needs to know their client's needs. And they also need to know when they have have an abusive client that's hoarding the equipment. Yeah. And then take it away. Yeah. Got to get the right stuff to the right place at the right time. Mm -hmm. And that's what that triangle is all about. And I think your equipment management team has got to be good at that. Mm Mm-hmm. So then, then that differs from the, the next one that says field maintenance operations, because that's not, you're not talking about in this, about actually using the equipment to actually perform the work. You're talking about the maintenance that happens in the field on that once it's deployed. Is that correct? That's correct. Yeah. So now we're talking about your PMs. Now we're talking about oil and grease, mm-hmm. and fluids, filters and adjustments and your preventive maintenance actions and your condition-based maintenance actions. And and all the work that your field mechanics do. So, so, so you said you said something interesting to me when I was down at your house. Well, it's almost been a year ago now. You talked about uh, green events, orange events, and red events. And okay. so so the, the the green events are the PMs. The orange events are things that uh, that that are indicated that need to happen, and the red events are down events. Yep. Work stoppage. Did I get that right? That's right. Yeah. So a red event is a, uh, is, a, is a reported emergency down. It's a down event. It's a breakdown. Right? It's a breakdown. And, 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 those, are, and those, are the, those are the leading indicator on the reliability side. Yes. 
Yes. And in this triangle, in your field maintenance operations, I sort of roll those repair events in as well. This is sure. this is running your field mechanics, all right? Yeah. You're okay. having capability in the field at the workplace where the machines will be maintained and where the machines will be repaired if you're doing repairs at the work phase. Sure. If in order to do the repairs, you bring them back to the shop, then we're talking about the next triangle, which is your shop and yard operations. Gotcha. And the shop and yard operations now are the, the physical shop, the the all of the equipment that you have there, and, and you still might be doing preventative maintenance there at times, but the but primarily you're doing the, the, the things that require the physical presence of the shop. Is that correct? Yes. The, the machines need a home. Mm-hmm. And so the yard particularly is where they come between jobs to have, uh, you know, backlog maintenance work done. Uh, if it's a major repair, they're brought back to the shop for the major repairs. They get tidied up. They get fixed up. They get put on a ready line and made ready for their next deployment. Gotcha. Why do you separate them so cleanly between field and shop? What have you seen that re- said, you didn't just say you have to be world-class at repairing equipment, but you said you have to be world-class first at field maintenance and then at shop and yard. There, there, what's the distinction there? Your field maintenance operations are done by your field mechanics uh, out of your mechanics truck in the field. And in many cases, the objective of field maintenance operations is to get the machine up and running and back to work as quickly as you can. Complete the 500-hour service, get it going as quickly as you can. Replace the blown hose, get it going as quickly as you can. And your field maintenance operations, the idea there is to get done at the work phase, get it back to, back to operation as quickly as you can. Gotcha. Shop and yard, you probably got your, another group of technicians who've got another group of skills working in a shop environment, at a bench environment, at a super clean environment. The object of the exercise, if you wish, is to restore the machine to its, its full health. Okay. And time is probably not as much of the essence because it's come back. Sure. The job's carrying on and doing their thing. Sure. And you're now getting it ready for its next deployment. The objectives are different. The skills, attitudes, and aptitudes are again different. Sure. So then, then that leads to the the, uh, the the final slice here: fleet and asset management. Because it does seem that the shop and yard have more to do with the fleet and asset management than, say, field operations. But it is tied in on your hexagon right next to acquisition and disposal. So it does feel like that. That is a. It does kind of complete the circle, complete the hexagon. I guess. Yeah. 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 The, the, the sequencing of the triangles are not, is not by mistake, all mm-hmm. right? Because, again, you're in, in the same way as acquisition and disposal and compliance and risk make up owning cost, your field maintenance and your shop and yards make up operating costs. Yeah. Okay. And, and now you're sitting with fleet and asset management. There, my thoughts were more to talk about the analytics, about the data gathering, about the finding out what's happening, about comparing where, you know, doing your costing, doing your reliability studies, measuring, running the operation. It's more talking about the analytics associated with the management of the fleet as an asset, as opposed to the field maintenance or shop and yards where you're managing the fleet as 
and repairing and replacing the machine as a as a piece of hardware. Right. Sure. So this is really where your analytics and your costing, and this is where know your costs happens, and this is where measure reliability happens, and this is where measure utilization and measure age happens. Sure, sure. So this is the quantitative number aspect, and again, a different skill and aptitude because the person who's going to be the true grit administrator who makes sure that licenses are renewed is not going to have the aptitude to doing the sort of stealth investigation to find out what the trend is in reliability. Sure. Right? And so this is where you have your your pathologists that are are investigating what's going on in the in the fleet. And this is where you have skills and aptitudes which are close to estimating because remember you're estimating the cost of a resource and you're going to use that estimate in the estimate. Right? Mm -hmm. And so the folk who do your fleet and asset management, the folk who are in that triangle, are very much closer to estimators and costs analysts than they are again to mechanics or plain hardcore administrators. Sure. Sure. Okay. Well, so the the second section of this draft, this ch chapter one draft, really, I mean, it's actually second, third, and fourth sections, if I if I understand it right. They um, really now start switching over to how the organization gathers around these functions that we just talked about, and yep. and, and there's some there's some central questions that have shown up and and I, I i can only imagine that the reason that it's organized this way is because people have asked you these questions one of the things is should i centralize my fleet should i have it be regionalized should i have should i have the how should i where where in the organization chart should the equi equipment be should they be underneath the vice president operation should they be a equivalent section and then um and you talk about having having even separate capital companies uh in this section actual separate entity that would lease or rent this equipment to the main operating company. How did those questions come about? I, mean, I can just imagine that there was people who sat across from you and there was tension in the room. And there was one guy who said that, you know, this guy over here and this guy over here and the CEO is trying to figure out the best way and you're trying to dance between <laughs> the, the, the answer politically. <laughs> yeah, yeah, very interesting issues, very interesting issues. Um, because, you know, we spoke about founding fathers and we spoke about returning GIs and first generation and second generation and third generations and, and formalizing your policies and formalizing your procedures and, and things like that, which happens with growth and maturity. All right. Organization and organization structure is amongst those things which very frequently need organization right, and structuring and formalizing. Because in the beginning, when this gearhead founding father, and my dad was one of them, you know, he had a shop foreman, and the shop foreman kind of did everything, all right? And the shop foreman and my dad went fishing a lot and uh, spoke a lot, and he was kind of, you know, he was the full-time gearhead, and my dad was the guy who had to get out and, and, and build some work from time to time. And so you had very informal structures as to how the equipment was costed, how the equipment was maintained, who was responsible for the mechanics, and all those sorts of things. Mm -hmm. 
And then kind of as an organization grows and you've got yourself a vice president of operations, does the vice president of operations look after the equipment working in on his projects? Yes, but does the vice president of operations, who's a construction contractor, have the skills, aptitudes, and abilities to do that? Is he sufficient of a gearhead? All right. Now let's imagine you get yourself two vice presidents of operations who are looking after, each of them looking after their fleets. Well, you're going to get two very different sets of opinion because there are no generally accepted practices, right? Yeah, right. And so what are you going to get now? You're now going to get duplication and confusion and all sorts of things relating to the management of your fleet. And I've got my machines that work on my jobs. You've got your machines that work on your jobs. You like brand A. I like brand B. Uh, you think that, uh, that these air cleaners are better than those air cleaners. You prefer to do that. You're going to get lots of confusion and duplication and that's not going to be the recipe for success. And so do you appoint yourself an equipment primo, whatever job title you're given, and say, listen, Joe, all equipment decisions are yours. You are running what amounts to an in-house rental house, and you are going to make the equipment available to the jobs for an agreed rate. You're going to take the risk of that rate being high enough to cover the true cost because we're going to make that rate as low as we possibly can to get the jobs because that rate is an estimate within the estimate, all right? And how much authority are you going to give Joe? Are the mechanics going to work for Joe? Is Joe going to be responsible for fueling the machine? If Joe wants a machine for half a day for a $1,000 service, are you going to give it to him because you want to get your production targets met, right? So if we create a centralized equipment group, tell me about the empathy and understanding between our equipment primo and our construction primo. Mm -hmm. Uh, Tell me about the empathy between our equipment primo and our CEO, Mm -hmm. given the fact that the CEO is probably a construction primo who's been promoted because he's damn good at building work. That's right. He hits his production targets and he hits his job costs, not because he hit his equipment costs, all right? (laughs) Right. And so you're going to get all sorts of organizational dynamics between a construction group and what amounts to a service support group being the guys that look after the equipment assets. The same way as you get dynamics between an IT group or an accounting group or an HR group to support the organization for the supply of human resources, accounting resources, and equipment resources. So so how how do these companies handle then once they grow and, and naturally as they grow, they become regionalized? You know, we have several clients right now who are just kind of in the early throes of this, right? They're, they just purchased their second shop. They just purchased, you know, they, yeah. they, just, they, they, they got a big contract in the neighboring state, you know, those kind of things where, where they're, they're capitalizing on their good name and, and, they're, and they're expanding. And, and, and now, you have, now you have long distances, you know, you know, even, you know, hundreds of miles in some cases between 
these two regions where this heavy equipment is needed. And heavy equipment is heavy, <laughs> and it's yeah. hard, to, hard to move it between those two regions. How do you? How? What, what have you seen there? Well, what, there's something that's really made this regionalized fleet uh, very much more possible than it was many years ago, and that is that from a costing and accounting point of view, it's very easy to regionalize your fleet, to produce a bunch of subtotals. Mm. There's a subtotal of all the performance metrics for the fleet working in, uh, in, in Oregon, and here's a, uh, a subtotal for all the, all the performance metrics for the fleet working in Washington. Yep, yep. And when the fleet is in Oregon, uh, everything that happens when the machine is in Oregon, everything that happens to it in Oregon is going to be subtotaled under those subtotals. And when it's in Washington, everything's going to be subtotaled under those subtotals. Mm. Maybe Oregon and Washington are bad examples because they're next door neighbors. But what would happen if you had Oregon and Nebraska? All yeah, right. Sure. You're very unlikely to move machines between Oregon and Nebraska. Right? Sure. You can have regional fleets, but you can also have sort of business line fleets. So I've got a heavy grading operation mm -hmm. and I've got a bunch of guys who concentrate on heavy grading. I've got a, a, a commercial building or a civil engineering or a, a project, uh, a mechanical electrical operation. Mm -hmm. And so I divide my fleet by functional lines, business lines in a way that I can divide my fleet and regional business lines. Yep. So if I divide my organization from a, Reporting an accountability point of view insofar as construction is concerned, then I might as well divide my organization from an accountability and responsibility point of view insofar as my fleet is concerned. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Because, of course, remember, in a centralized fleet, your vice president of operation pays the internal transfer price. And your vice president of operations never experiences the true cost of your fleet. Yeah. If there's a difference between your internal transfer price, your rate, yep. and the true cost of your fleet, that budget variance is consolidated in the equipment account at a corporate level. And so you're going to get the fleet manager responsible for the budget variance between the rate and the true cost of the fleet. The operations guy is going to be responsible for the budget variance between the cost of construction and the true cost of labor materials and subcontractors, but the internal transfer price for equipment. Yeah. Okay. Now, if I can subtotal and regionalize my fleet, any variance between the transfer price and the true cost can be consolidated in the financial performance metrics of the regional manager. Yes. So the regional manager now can't hide behind, if you wish, the skirts of the equipment manager. Yeah, yep. Okay, and that's a big reason to regionalize your fleet because sure. you're now making regional construction manager responsible for the true cost. Yeah, and, and, and what's so interesting, you, you mentioned this earlier too, it's, it's very possible to do this with modern accounting systems. With modern accounting systems, it's it, it's it's made much easier than it was in the in the bad old days when I used to walk uphill both ways. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, There's yes, no green yes. ledgers to fill out. Yeah. Yeah. 
And so, uh, so modern accounting systems can uh, can do this uh, very, very much, very easily and and straightforward. And if you move machines from one operating district or from one business line responsibility center to another, you'll you'll need to you know acknowledge that movement one way or the other, yeah. depending on how you do. Final question on this chapter that I had kind of reading through this was about the the capital company and, and leasing companies. And I've seen this, I've seen this occasionally. Um, it seems like that the, you know, as companies grow, they, they kind of flirt with this a little bit, oftentimes for tax reasons, you know, there'll be, there'll be some, it'll be advantageous to have a, have a company in one place rather than in another. And they'll lease each other, you know, the equipment, there's, there's some tax reasons for that. Reading through there, I, it struck me, I said, do you have a firm opinion one way or another on capital companies have you seen this go badly have you seen this go well what was you know there's there's it seems like if you have a capital company there's clearly ways you can do it badly but the very first question is should i have a capital company to begin with well three or four of my clients do it there are quite definitely pros and cons the the most significant pro is that in that capital company in the company that acquires all the equipment, handles all the capitalization and the financing of that equipment, and then acts almost as an in-house leasing house to the construction company. Mm-hmm. In that capital equipment, capital company, you can bring a lot of really smart finance and acquisition people to bear. And you really create that expertise in a in a defined organization, right? Uh, these, these folk would probably not even know the difference between oil and grease, or, and sure. nor would they care, nor would they need to. Sure. But they sure would hang, know the difference between an operating lease and a financial lease, sure. okay? And they sure would know the difference between cash flow before tax and cash flow after tax. And they'd sure know that what discounted cash flow is and the yeah. rate of return, all right? And so you're bringing that expertise together, and that's one good reason that I've seen. The other reason, which a lot of folks cite as a good reason, but which truly isn't, is they feel they can create a corporate veil between the company that owns the assets and the company that runs the assets from a litigation point of view. Okay. But if the ownership of the two organizations is the same, then that veil is easily pierced. I see. Right? That brings us to reason number three why some folk do it, and that is that the construction company and the capital equipment company might have a different set of owners. Let's imagine a situation where the company that owns the equipment, which is a very much more financial high-tech, but risk lower risk business in the construction business mm-hmm. it certainly doesn't require engineers all right sure why that company might have a different group of shareholders could be more closely aligned with the family and its interests sure i've seen i've seen family wealth yeah i've seen i've seen the that used as a way of transferring ownership actually where the operating business which is which becomes then asset light is more easily purchased by the second generation who are just coming up and don't have the capital to purchase. And the first generation in their older age 
retains these assets for a time. Or if the family retains the assets and then it is very relaxed with regards to transferring ownership of the operating company to the operating managers. Sure. Because if the operating managers then get the fruits of their operating decisions mm -hmm. as owners and the capital intensive uh, capital company gets the fruits of the way in which we're investing our wealth in the RBI. All right. So there, so there are lots, there are folk uh, in my personal experience who do that. Okay. And done that very successfully. The downside, of course, is you've got to be pretty damn careful with regards to sales tax. Because if you are selling something from one entity to another entity, especially that entity has sufficiently different ownership levels to have a fairly comprehensive uh, litigation wall mm -hmm. stop you from claims against the operating company, then you, that wall is probably sufficient to cause there to be sales tax to throw money over that wall. Sure. Right? And so you might end up paying sales tax. Sure. Coming and going. Yeah. But there again, there are a lot of smart folk who work on that. Yeah. Yeah, that makes yeah. sense. So there are pluses and minuses. Under the right conditions, it's been very successfully done. Well, you know, all of this leads right into chapter two. But I, unfortunately, I don't think that uh, we have time today to talk about chapter two. Maybe we can get together later on and talk about it. But, it, you know, it, it seems that so much of what you're talking about when we talk about what you've seen and your opinions on things and, and how you came up with this framework comes from your understanding of the people involved. And, and if I understand right, that's chapter two in a nutshell. How do people work together to get these things done? Yes, because, you know, success is a team sport, huh? Yeah. And, and we're caught between two competing forces. In the first case, we want to divide our organization into very clear responsibility centers. And we want to uh, get bright, smart, competitive, ambitious people running the responsibility centers. Well, let's let's get together then, and and I because I I have so many more questions on that side because that's that is that is it's just fascinating how people work together in order to to get a common cause done, and uh, even defining what is their common cause can be kind of a problem <laughs> sometimes. <laughs> so so let's get together and and talk about that when we talk about chapter two, and uh, I. And and I think that I think that this is this is fascinating. You know, this is this is probably a good time to break here. Um, but thank you very much for talking about this. That's it for today, folks. See you next time.